Chapter One of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beyond Utopia. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter One A Letter from the Dead. There were masses of black clouds in the grey evening sky, and a misty darkness brooded over the shoulder of the moor, as the barouche, with its fine upstanding greys, came swinging round the curve of the road leading to Calander Castle, a more luxurious carriage than is generally to be met with on a Cumbrian moor. But this carriage belonged to a lady whose importance filled the land to the farthest limit of moor and valley and away to the edge of yonder distant sea whose leaden waves were edged with livid spray at the sunset hour of a stormy october afternoon the lady sibyl countess of penrith was sitting alone in her carriage wrapped in dark fur with a proud clearly cut face showing pale between the sable of her close-fitting toque and the sable collar of her velvet mantle her eyes had a dreamy look as they surveyed the desolate landscape the undulating sweep of moorland the distant grey of the sea the droop of the sensitive lips suggested mournful thoughts or it might be only a pensive reverie in harmony with the sullen atmosphere and the dark monotony of the landscape suddenly out of the very ground as it seemed to lady penrith a rough-looking man came running after the carriage the footman looked round at him as if he had been a dog and took no further heed than he would have taken of a dog the coachman drove steadily on touching the muscular shoulders of the sleek greys daintily with the point of his whip quickening the pace as the sky darkened the man came running on giving chase to the carriage and waving an arm in a ragged fustian sleeve stop cried lady penrith and the coachman pulled up his horses in the midst of the bleak bare moor and the footman alighted from the box and came to the carriage door touching his hat with gloved fingers mute image of obedience and subserviency that man wants to speak to me said her ladyship wait the vagabond's footsteps grew near he was at the carriage door in less than three minutes breathless and hoarsely panting with a sound like the grating of rusty iron he looked like a shepherd out of employment ragged gaunt hungry-eyed are you lady penrith he asked yes answered her ladyship with her purse open in her hand having only one idea as to the man's motive in following her carriage beggars were rare on that moorland road but this man was evidently a beggar she thought and not being a political economist her first impulse was to relieve him he never said a word but fumbled under the ragged shirt which hardly hid his lean breast 
and produced a folded scrap of paper which he flung into the lady's lap then turned and ran away across the moor this time as fast as he had run after the carriage three minutes before follow him said lady per penrith to the footman and the footman went tripping and stumbling under and over the stony moor nearly falling down at every second step the hungry vagabond vanished into the dim grey of evening before the overfed lackey in his buckled shoes had gone fifty yards across that uneven ground he came back breathlessly apologetic and explained the impossibility of catching a man who ran like a rabbit do you know who he is or where he comes from no my lady never saw him before to my knowledge there is no village in that direction nearer than cargill and that is three miles off he must have come from cargill i suppose a beggar no doubt that will do james home home the word how often soever she might pronounce it had always a sign sound of irony in her ear what likeliness was there between the english ideal of home and colander castle on the cumbrian moorland or penrith house berkeley square or the mimosas at con or the den near brymar or any habitation owned by archibald earl of penrith there are men and women who can create an atmosphere of domestic peace in a log hut in the australian bush or in a lodging-house at the east end of london there are others who among a dozen palaces cannot make one home a pale streak of yellow light on the western edge of the moor showed where the sun had dipped below the horizon a colder wind blew from the far-off sea and lady penrith shivered as she took up the scrap of soiled paper from her lap and held it gingerly with the tips of her gloved fingers it was less than half a sheet of note-paper there were only a few penciled words in four straggling lines along the paper and those few words were so difficult to decipher that lady penrith had to pore over them for a long time in the waning light before she made them into the following sentences out of the grave the living grave a long forgotten voice calls to you where their worm dieth not and their fire is not quenched no signature no indication of from whom or whence the message came a madman's scrawl no doubt inspired by some half-cloudy purpose in the troubled brain of lunacy the ragged wretch whom she had taken for a beggar 
was doubtless some wandering lunatic harmless and therefore permitted to ramble about the countryside a religious enthusiast perhaps the scrap of scripture pointed that way lady penrith resolved to drive to cargill next day and search out the history of the writer if indeed he lived there as seemed likely unless he were to be found in one of those lonely cottages scattered here and there over the face of the moor between penrith and arliston the little seaport whence coal and iron were shipped for the south a great tract of wild country broken only by small and solitary hamlets lay between these two points the coal mines and smelting works and miners villages all lay northward of ardliston the landscape on this southward side of the harbour was wild and gloomy but had a certain stern beauty of its own and was not disfigured by mining operations of any kind lady penrith was interested in the troubled mind which had prompted that pencil scrawl a call to repentance no doubt such as a summons as the pauper puritan seeking rank and beauty rolled by in a three hundred guinea barouche not unseldom feels himself called upon to deliver there was really nothing to wonder at there was hardly anything exceptional in the incident unless perhaps it were that the man should have been there in the nick of time as her ladyship's carriage went by yet even that circumstance was easy enough to understand if he were an inhabitant of the district she drove in that direction often and as a person of mark in the neighbourhood her habits were doubtless noted and known no there was nothing curious in the incident nothing worthy of much thought and yet she thought of nothing else during her homeward drive she carried the thought with her under the great grey gateway with its iron portcullis and into the hall where the atmosphere of smouldering logs and hothouse flowers had a feeling as of the warm sweet south she knew so well and up to her own sitting-room where the slip of soiled paper lay on her lap as she sipped her solitary cup of tea his lordship and his lordship's friends had been out shooting all day her niece a niece by courtesy had gone with a luncheon cart and the lady of Calander castle had the great medieval fortress all to herself in the october gloaming presently she drew the lamp nearer and scrutinized that penciled scrawl even more closely than before in the bright white light it is not the writing of an uneducated man she said to herself and then her head sank lower as her elbow rested on the cushioned arm of her chair until her forehead almost touched the slip of paper on the table in front of her she sat there some minutes lost in dreamy thought how strange that the hand should be like 
his she murmured and then after a pause is it really like or do i fancy a resemblance because he is so often in my thoughts then another lapse into reverie he was not in my mind to-day i had other things to think of i was brooding on the hard realities of life not upon its losses and regrets she took up the paper studied again noting its every stroke of the pencil it is like the writing of the dead she said at last with conviction the hand which wrote was the hand of a gentleman i must hunt out the writer i shall not rest until i find out who and what he is a madman no doubt but should he be in poverty and distress i should like to help him if it were only because he writes like the dead she rose and went across the room to the large old-fashioned escritoire where most of her letters were written and among numerous pigeonholes and quaint recesses there were two deep drawers provided with brahma locks she unlocked one of these and dropped the scrap of paper on the top of the neatly arranged packets of letter tied with different colored ribbons letters were which were in some wise the record of a woman's life there was one of these packets the thinnest of them tied with a broad black ribbon lady penrith stood for a minute or two with the drawer open looking down at those letters bound with the black band then she slowly closed the drawer and locked it and as she turned away from the escritoire her eyes were dim with tears that fancied resemblance in a handwriting had been like the lifting of a coffin lid for one last look at the dead face underneath all the passion and the despair of a long buried past had come back to sybil penrith at the bidding of an unknown lunatic who happened to write like the man to whom she had given her girlish heart ten years ago she was sitting in her low chair by the fire in the shadow of a tall indian screen when the door opened suddenly and an exuberant young woman came noisily into the room and brought the dreamer back in an instant from the past with its fond regrets to the present with its manifold obligations ah such a day cried the newcomer you are better off even in your dreary afternoon drive i had to wait and wait and wait for those men until i was absolutely ravenous and the hot dishes were utterly spoiled i shall never go out with the luncheon cart again unless i have three or four pretty girls to back me up those selfish wretches would be punctual enough then 
but they don't mind reducing poor plain me to the verge of starvation poor plain cora said her ladyship as the girl seated herself at the tea-table and began a spirited attack upon the cakes and buns which lady penrith had left untasted girls who really think themselves plain don't talk about it they live in the hope that it is a secret between themselves and their looking-glasses oh but i am an exception to your rule protested miss urquhart with her large serviceable mouth full of scotch bun when i was twelve years old i found out the difference between beauty and ugliness i heard all the pretty little girls admired such blue eyes such long lashes such dear little mouths such lily and rose complexions and such lovely golden hair well i observed that people called me good or clever or sensible as if any girl wanted to be called sensible so i looked steadily at my image in the glass and i faced the unpleasant fact you are plain coralie i said to myself unmistakably plain you have tolerable eyes and good teeth but your nose is a failure your complexion is pallid and your mouth is just twice too large for prettiness never forget that you are plain my dear coralie and then perhaps other people won't remember the fact quite so often shake hands with fate accept your thick nose and your pallid complexion as the stern necessities of your existence and make the most of your eyes and teeth and your average head of hair that is the gist of what i said to myself in less sophisticated language perhaps before i was fifteen and from that line of conduct i have never departed so if i have come to nineteen years of age with out being admired at least i have escaped being laughed at you are a bright clever girl cora and have quite enough good looks to float your cleverness and to win you plenty of attention of your sex do you really mean that asked miss urquhart turning a pair of keen brown eyes upon lady penrith well you who are among the handsomest of your sex can afford to be generous the men are civil enough to me certainly and i believe some of them like me in a way as a jolly good fellow don't you know <laughs> i think you ought to leave off being a jolly good fellow cora and remember that you are a young lady now your twentieth birthday is drawing near said her ladyship with kindly seriousness what leave off cigarettes and horsey talk forego my morning fun in the stables and kennels and give the billiard-room a holiday and take to embroidering window curtains and reading the last book of the honourable somebody's travels in timbuktu so i would auntie if i could only make up my mind which line is likely to pay best in such a case as mine the well brought up standoffish young lady 
or the free and easy young person whom her male acquaintances talk to as good fun or not a bad sort perhaps you will explain what you mean by paying best oh i'm sure you catch my meaning which line will bring me the most eligible offer of marriage that is the question of course there is a sprinkling of proper-minded young men the cream of the peerage and the landed gentry who could only be won by a proper-minded young woman but i doubt if among those chosen ones there is a chance for such as i and i have observed that the ruck of young men refer the society of a girl who is distinctly on their own level a little below them rather than a little above that is why chorus girls and barmaids often get on so well in the world ah cora what a pity you should have learnt so much about the seamy side of life yes that comes of being brought up by a father instead of a mother had my mother lived she would have reared me in a state of guileless innocence i should have thought burlesque boys and pantomime fairies a kind of semi-angelic creatures and i should never have learned of a barmaid whereas the governor used to entertain me with the gossip of the clubs every morning at breakfast the only meal he took at home my poor coralie and your father pray don't call him governor taught you that your mission in life is to marry well if i can badly if i can't at any rate to get myself some kind of husband so as to take myself off the paternal hands at least that was his idea a year or two ago now that you are so good to me and let me be here and in berkeley square he is no longer so keen on my marrying so long as i don't worry or burden him with he is satisfied but when you grow tired of me i'm not going to tire of you cora i mean to grow fonder of you if you will let me let you why i worship you you are my ideal of all that is perfect in woman if the leopard could change his spots i would prove my sincerity by trying to be like you in grace and dignity and high and pure thoughts lady penrith acknowledged these compliments with a sigh oh i know you have only a poor opinion of yourself you don't know half how good you are good i am nothing cora i am a passive nonentity a piece of human furniture that fills an allotted space in lord penrith's establishment and which is of no importance in the world either for good or evil that is hard ain't it sighed coralie with your beauty you ought to have done as much harm as cleopatra you ought to have seen fleets destroyed and 
army slaughtered for your beaux and kept two kingdoms in commotion like mary stuart or even in these degenerate modern times you might have set the town in a blaze been the cause of separations and divorces belgian duels and mayfair suicides with such beauty and such wealth as yours to be only lady penrith no it is not so much after all and yet how many people envy you i myself for instance i hope you are above so paltry a feeling cora no don't hope anything exalted or noble of my father's daughter said coralie renewing her attack upon a pile of crisp biscuits and munching as she talked i don't like to hear a daughter speak of her father as you speak of yours cora lady penrith said gravely and i would much rather you left his name out of our conversation you ought to remember that he and i have long ceased to be friends i ought i ought cried cora i am a wretch to forget and then she put down her biscuit and sighed remorsefully it was so good of you to re rescue me from my shabby lonely life it was so good of you to forget that i am hubert urquhart's daughter you are my husband's niece that gives you a claim upon me cora there are hundreds of women who would laugh such a claim to scorn and you have plenty of girls of your own blood to care for those nice hammond girls who are devoted to you they are very good girls but they have a mother to look after them and i was motherless and alone educated in a second-rate school kept by a needy french woman in a shabby suburb beyond the bois de boulogne eating my heart out in a dingy lodging-house which had but one virtue that it was near my father's favorite clubs oh how i hate it nar dark narrow street under the shadow of st james's church and the joy bells and death bells and the clock that struck all the weary hours and the smart weddings which served only to remind me how little chance i had of ever being married in a respectable manner and the land landlady who would come in and squat down uninvited upon the wretched sofa until i felt tempted to ask whether the law between landlord and tenant made it her sofa or ours and who condoled me because i must be so lonely with my books and piano as if books and piano were not better than her cockney company ah it was a bottomless pit of squalid misery from which you rescued me i ought to be grateful don't talk about gratitude cora be happy that is all i want of you i'll do my best answered the girl briskly i don't know whether it is the chef or mrs ricketts who makes these 
two delicious biscuits but whatever hand mixes the paste it is the hand of genius and now i must go and give myself a warm bath after all the mud and mire of the day's diversion and spend an hour or so in making myself just endurable put on one of your prettiest frocks said lady penrith mr coverdale is a good enough match for any young woman the honourable and reverend john coverdale it looks rather nice upon the address of a letter but do you suppose for one minute aunt that a serious and cultured anglican parson would ever look with the eye of favour upon me asked cora pausing with her hand upon the door love delights in incongruities mr coverdale is highly intellectual and i believe both kind and conscientious he is just the husband to to reform me ah aunt if it were any use trying for him she opened the door quickly and was gone lady penrith heard her whistling a music-hall melody learnt in the smoking-room as she went along the corridor that is the warmest affection i get in this house thought sibyl penrith as the notes died away in the distance and i wonder whether she is false or true and urquhart and true that would indeed be an anomaly but then there is the other side her mother may have been a good woman she wanted to think well of this motherless girl if she could for pure pity although the girl was the daughter of that man whom she regarded as her worst enemy the man who had turned the sweetest gift of life into bitterness and despair she believed the worst of hubert urquhart her husband's half-brother and yet hearing from lord penrith that hubert urquhart's daughter was living alone and neglected in a bachelor lodging-house all her kindly instincts rose in the girl's favour and she lay awake a whole night thinking how she could serve this unhappy waif whose misfortune it was to belong to such a father there was one thing lady poor penrith could not do she could not cross the threshold of any house inhabited by hubert urquhart she spoke to her husband on the morning after that night of troubled thought i have been thinking of what you told me yesterday about your brother's girl she began i don't like the idea of your niece being in such a miserable position and if you don't object i should like to take her to live with me there is plenty of room for her at, both here and in the country yes there is room enough undoubtedly we are not a large family said penrith who had fretted himself with an angry wonder at the absence of an heir two children had been born to him and had died in infancy it seemed to him that there was a curse upon his union with a woman who had never flattered him so far as to pretend she loved him she had given 
him herself and her wealth the plaything of fate the slave of adverse circumstances and it seemed to him and perhaps to the wife also that a blight had fallen upon their offspring the withering blight of a home where love never entered you have no objection then asked sibyl after a pause they were in the hall in the great stately house near berkeley square one of those few houses in west end london where rank may live within high garden walls hidden from the outside world the garden was gloomy after the manner of london gardens despite all that horticulture could do in the way of carpet beds and showy creepers the house was grandly ugly without and splendidly luxurious within the wife's wealth had been spent lavishly upon that long neglected neglected pile and could the last earl of penrith have visited his town mansion his astonished ghost would hardly have recognized the rooms which in his own day had been conspicuous for the shabbiness of their curtains and carpets and for the ugliness of their furniture of the later georgian period under her present ladyship's regime the house had been furnished and decorated throughout after the fashion of louis seize and it might have been the mansion entre cour et jardin of a legitimist nobleman in the faubourg saint-germain space and light grace of line and the delicacy of colouring distinguished those large and lofty reception rooms that airy hall with its double sweep of shallow marble stairs its groups of palms and gracious marble forms of fawn and nymph cupid and psyche penrith paced up and down the hall with an inscrutable countenance he was a man in whom speech seemed in some wise an effort you won't mind my having your niece as a kind of companion will you penrith urged his wife mind no of course not it is very good of you to suggest the thing all i fear is that the girl may prove a bore to you and so the matter was settled and coralie urquhart was transferred with her meagre belongings from the shabby second floor in german street to penrith house where there was room and verge enough to allow this young lady her own sitting-room as well as a spacious bed and dressing-room she declared that she felt like a princess amidst her new surroundings and so much so the more after madame Lelotte, her ladyship's dressmaker had taken her measure for a complete set of frocks and outdoor garments to suit all the requirements of her new life sibyl was far too delicate to suggest any overhauling of the girl's existing wardrobe but a few judicious questions elicited the fact that miss urquhart possessed exactly five frocks three tailor-made and threadbare while the remaining two were evening gowns a year and a half old and too small to be worn without torture 
the potter's tailor gave me a start with these nice little tweed frocks when i came from paris but he has turned disagreeable since then and won't give me any more tick Carly was mildly reproved for that last word and madame lalotte was sent for and told that she must produce a season's dresses for miss urquhart before the end of the week she shrugged her shoulders and elevated her eyebrows then exhibited all her neat little teeth in a caressing smile pour peu milady en fait l'impossible she said mais mon dieu quatre jours pour faire faire une trousse and the result of the impossible was done so far as the production of two delicious little walking-gowns and three party-frocks of a most exquisite simplicity yet with a certain boldness of style and colouring which set off miss urquhart's plainness elle est franchement laide le petite the dressmaker told lady penrith's maid at a later interview but it is an original style of ugliness and i like it better than your milky-skinned english with their faces in papier mache henceforth coralie's life was a bed of roses or would have been had she been without conscience and without heart unluckily for her she had not yet attained that hardness which rises superior to all moral feelings all vain compunctions but she was her father's daughter and she was in a fair way of becoming like him he had a serious conversation with her the night before she left him to become a member of his brother's family cora he said thoughtfully lying back in the one comfortable armchair which his landlady provided for her victims and smoking his favourite briarwood you are and i are not likely to see much of each other while you are under lady penrith's protection why not she asked wonderingly because her ladyship hates me like poison never mind why she hates me it is an old story and a long one i don't reciprocate the feeling and i am profoundly interested in the lady and all that concerns her by the way do you keep a diary of course most girls do do they well they must have more to write about than i have since i left madame michu's what should i put down tuesday poured out father's coffee went for a walk in the green park with the landlady's daughter began another novel rather stupider than the last why does Mudie send one of the books one doesn't ask for instead of the book one has been wanting for the last three weeks went to bed at half-past eleven father had not come home do you think that sort of record would be worth keeping happy the woman who has no history answered her father sententiously well you will keep a diary in the future if you please cora and you will keep it in such a manner as you, you will admit of your allowing me to read it 
you will have plenty to record at penrith house and Calander castle you will have her ladyship a most interesting study a poem and history incarnate i want you to observe her closely and to write down everything that concerns her her actions sentiments opinions the people with whom she associates and the esteem in which she holds them father said cora looking at him with wide open eyes and hardening lips more earnestly than she had ever looked at him in her life before you want me to be a spy no my dear i only want you to be an observer my interest in lady penrith is founded on the purest motives i want to put an end to the feud between us which is perilous for her and unpleasant for me i know her miserably mated to my brother who is well about as bad as they make him continued urquhart taking refuge in slang and i have no doubt i could be of use to her in the future financially in the protection of her fortune and otherwise and i can only serve her by watchfulness personal or vicarious it is just possible that this kindness to you means a change of feeling towards me a holding out of the olive branch so much the better if it does but in any case you must watch for me since i can't watch for myself and you will find out her friends and her enemies and on which side the peril lies will you assure me that you are her friend and that no harm can come of anything i may tell you i do assure you that i am her friend i will go further and tell you that ten years ago i was her adoring lover she refused me her heart was buried in another man's grave and a few months afterwards she married my elder brother the match was of old joseph higginson's making i have no doubt she accepted a coronet with a wry face perhaps but accepted it all the same as women do the old romantic feeling of mine died out long ago but sybil penrith is still a great dear nearer and dearer to me than any other woman and i should like to help her if she ever has need of help she is too rich not to be robbed she is too handsome not to be tempted you will be with her in a confidential capacity you are keen enough to scent either danger and to pass the warning on to me you can send me your di diary weekly i can't understand how you can be any use to her i don't ask you to understand replied mr arkhart with admirable nonchalance puffing quietly at his briarwood chapter one